Who are your true friends? Uh, who are your real friends? Well, surely they are those who are there for you in trouble. Uh, they're, they're not those who, who disappear when trouble comes into your life. And in 2 Samuel 15 and 16, David is in trouble. And it's when he's in trouble that we see who his true friends are and who his enemies are. But why should we care? Perhaps that's not a question that has occurred to any of you, but it might occur to some. They might say this is all very interesting and all that, but but what's the relevance of it? Is it just so that we can learn a bit about friendship and, and how perhaps we can be good friends to people? Or perhaps a question someone else might ask is, how does this tie in with the, the big story of the Bible? If the Bible ultimately tells one story, how do these chapters with, with these individuals mentioned, how does that uh, fit in? Uh, and what do they have to say to a world where people are rejecting the Christian faith, abandoning the Christian faith, and so on? Well, I want to take a, a bit longer tonight in uh, the introduction to explain why these things do matter and why they are relevant. Uh, and the first thing we have to remember when we come to David in particular is that he isn't just anybody. Uh, rather, David is God's chosen king. So to rebel against David and his kingdom is to rebel against the Lord and his kingdom. Now that might sound like we're saying David is perfect to rebel against. David is to rebel against God. Sure, he's just a, a man and a sinful man at that. And certainly he is, in fact, uh, the very things David is suffering in these chapters are, are a direct result of his own sin. His sin with Bathsheba, his sin in having her husband murdered. But unlike with Saul, God has not rejected David as his king. Uh, and as someone has put it, David must be viewed uh, not as an individual, but in terms of his office. In other words, in terms of his official position. Uh, and God is the one who has put David in place. And so to rebel against him is to rebel against God. Something else to notice, which I mentioned briefly last Lord's Day evening, is that, that what defines all these different characters here in chapters 15 and 16 is how they respond to David. And in fact, not just what defines them in these chapters, but, but the Bible's permanent verdict on these characters is based on how they respond to David. If you want to put it like this, the characters who, who are, are good examples for us are those who, who follow David uh, and are loyal to David. Uh, and the, the, the bad examples for us are those who, who don't follow David and who aren't loyal to him. Just as the one thing that will define any of us forever won't be what we have achieved in life. It won't be what children we had or what they achieved. It won't be what we contributed to our community or how successful we were. 
But what will define each of us forever is how we responded to Jesus Christ. Because he too is God's anointed king. In fact, he is God's true and final king who David could only foreshadow. David was a sinner. Jesus wasn't. David was a man. Jesus was God and man. And so what will define us forever is whether on earth we put our faith in Jesus or not. Because ultimately that is all that matters. That will be all that matters for us a hundred years from tonight, a thousand years from tonight. The one thing that will decide where we are all those years in the future and countless years that lie ahead is what we do now with Jesus Christ while we're on earth. But not just what we do with Jesus in general, but what we do with him when the majority of people are against him and his cause looks weak. Because again, that's David here. David is God's Messiah. He is the true king, but the majority of people are against him. His cause looks weak. You're going to really think twice about casting your lot in with David as he leaves the city. Uh, not knowing if, if he'll come back, when he'll come back. There have been times when it would have been easy to back David. Uh, there would have been times when it was easy to say, well, David, he is the true king. I'm, I'm going to be loyal to David. But not now. Not now. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether willingly or unwillingly. But right now we have the choice. And right now the majority of people don't believe that Jesus is God's chosen king. Right now his kingdom looks weak. But that is where faith comes in. Faith to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. And faith to believe that one day every other kingdom will crumble and his kingdom will be seen to be supreme. So do you believe that? Do you believe that this rejected king outside of Jerusalem, not David but Jesus, do you believe that he is God's anointed king. Are you willing to stake your eternal future on this king being who he claimed he was? Even at a time when most people around us, if they think of Jesus at all, it's to use his name uh, as a swear word or, or just to shrug their shoulders. Are you willing to stake your life on this king? Are you willing to associate with him and all that will entail? And don't say yes lightly to this. Don't say yes lightly. Because just as following David back then meant having to live in exile, so following Jesus now means having to live in exile. For David's friends in this chapter to be loyal to him would mean leaving the, their homes. For, for some of them at least it would mean leaving their comfortable lives. It would mean living by faith that his cause was right and that one day God would vindicate him. Whether they lived to see it or not. 
Uh, and it's the same for us. Peter, in his first letter, writes to Christians to tell them how to conduct themselves during the time of their exile. He writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Three times Peter describes Christians as exiles. And why does he describe us as exiles as elect exiles well not because war or persecution had forced his readers to leave their homes but simply because they were christians and simply because they were christians this world was no longer their home and so from now on they were going to live like people whose true home was elsewhere because their true home is elsewhere our true home is elsewhere And so count the cost before you say yes to following God's chosen Messiah. Because it will mean living as an exile for the rest of your time on earth. Even as those around you settle down and try and find heaven here and now. So no, this chapter isn't about friendship. Uh, Just as the story of David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel isn't mainly about friendship. With Jonathan, the big question was whether he, as Saul's son, would press his own right or his own claim to the throne. or, Or if he'd give up those natural rights and privileges and follow God's chosen king instead. And it's the same here. These chapters... Yes, it's Old Testament language, but but they're really about the most important decision you will ever make. And that's why I've taken about a third of our time tonight, simply to introduce what's at stake here. It's about God's king being despised. It's about God's king being, being cast out by the people And it's about how we'll respond to him when he looks weak, when he looks pathetic. So how do the the various characters in these two chapters respond to God's chosen king? Well, we'll look firstly at those who, who commit themselves to him, whatever the cost. And then secondly, at those who oppose him, whether secretly or openly. Uh, because it is are very possible to oppose Jesus secretly, even while sitting in church listening to a sermon about him. So firstly, we'll look at those who commit themselves to God's King. And heading up this category, in chapter 15, verse 19, we have Ittai, Ittai the Gittite. He is what you might call a recent convert. He isn't an Israelite, rather he's a Philistine from the city of Gath. Uh, boys and girls, can you think of anyone else who came from the city of Gath? Well, that is where Goliath came from. And this man, Ittai, comes from the same place as Goliath. He's a Philistine and yet he comes to trust in the true God. Up to this point, him and his men are presumably hired soldiers, that they're mercenaries. And it's one thing to be a hired soldier or otherwise commit to David while he is king, while he is on the throne in Jerusalem. 
But what about now that he's on the run? And so in verses 19 and 20, David gives him the chance to leave. Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Is David saying that he doesn't want Ittai to come with him? No, but he doesn't want anyone serving him under compulsion. If Ittai follows David, David wants it to be from his heart. And does Jesus want any less from us? Do we honour King Jesus if we serve him out of compulsion, merely out of duty? Yes, it is our duty to serve him, but merely out of duty. Uh, that will bring no honour to him. Surely he's, he says to us in the words of Proverbs chapter 23, My son, give me your heart. My daughter, give me your heart. And so just like Naomi with her daughters-in-law Orpah and Ruth, David gives Ittai the chance to go home. But just like Ruth, Ittai will stick with David and with David's God. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, whether my Lord the King shall, shall be, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. It's interesting that Ittai, having spent time with David, is now talking about David's Lord. And, and Ittai is not going to abandon the Lord's anointed, even, even if it means death. Which it may actually have meant for Ittai. It's been suggested that since we don't hear of Ittai again after the big battle of chapter 18. In that big battle he'll lead a third of the troops. He'll be rewarded, given a position of responsibility for his commitment to David. He leads a third of the troops into battle and then we don't hear anything about Ittai again. And So it's been suggested he may have been killed in the battle we can't say for sure. But I, either way, it, it reminds us that when Ittai talks about life and death, it's not just flowery words. A, a battle is looming where people will die. And here Ittai is saying that even if being loyal to David means facing death, he won't change his mind. And in saying all this, Ittai isn't actually too far from the Apostle Paul uh, Another surprising convert in the Bible, who many centuries later would say, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. So Old Testament, New Testament, this is the, the commitment that we're called to, a life and death commitment to God's chosen King. So Ittai's faith is impressive in and of itself, but it's even more impressive when compared to those around him, particularly those Israelites who have so easily switched allegiance from David to Absalom, because the Israelites, by and large, David's own people, they're not queuing up to follow him out of the city. As the Lord Jesus would say to a Roman centurion, marvelling at him, 
Not even in Israel have I found such faith. Deorof Davis says that Ittai is an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery. Isn't that good? Isn't that something to aspire to? An island of fidelity, of faithfulness in a sea of treachery. We spend a lot of time complaining perhaps about the sea, but the question is, what are we going to be? So Ittai decides to follow David. I have decided, he says, to follow David. No turning back. But it's not just a decision for himself. We read in verse 22 that all his men follow him and all the little ones who were with him. And that's one of the reasons actually that we had a baby baptised here yesterday. Why we don't just say, well, wait until they're older and they can decide for themselves. Whatever Ittai decides, it's not just a decision for himself. If Ittai goes back home to his Philistine city and his Philistine gods, his children will go with him. But if he chooses to risk his life and identify with God's true king, who the people have rejected, his children will follow him there instead. So parents who don't raise their children in the faith, they're not being neutral They're not postponing a decision until later, but they are deciding for them. They're making a decision not to identify with God's true king themselves. And that decision will impact their family. Paul uh, writes to Timothy and he says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. The decisions that we take will impact our children. On the same side as Ittai, in chapter 15, we have Abiathar, Zadok, and Hushai, three of David's friends, uh, who who we'll look at just briefly. Uh, We saw last week how Abiathar and Zadok came carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And we looked at it from David's perspective then. How David refused to try and use God, how he refused to try and use that sacred object as a lucky charm as others had before him. But tonight let's, let's think about it briefly from Abiathar and Zadok's perspective. Because what are they trying to do? They're, they're trying to help David even if they're not going about it the right way. They've risked a lot by leaving Jerusalem that they're willing to leave it all behind But David tells them that actually they'll be more useful to him back in Jerusalem as informants. Verse 28, See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Uh, And it's the same with Hushai, actually. Uh, At the end of the chapter, when he comes to David, David says, verse 33, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But David has a better plan for him. Verse 34, return to the city. Let on that you're going to be loyal to Absalom and defeat the council of Ahithophel. The big question in these chapters is who's going to be loyal to David? But we see here that people can be loyal to David in different ways. They they all assume that being loyal to him will mean leaving Jerusalem. Uh, And for Ittai that's true. 
but for some of them, David says no, because they can be more useful where they are. Not unlike uh, when uh, the man called Legion wants to come with Jesus. Uh, and Jesus doesn't permit him. But, but he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So just because someone isn't serving God in the same way as you, don't assume that they're not serving God at all. And just because you're not serving God in the same manner as someone else, don't assume that their service is more important than yours. We're all parts of the body. We all have different roles to play. The important thing is whether we are serving God, whether we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and that will look different uh, for, for, for each of us. And notice as well here just how often God's people assume that they can be more useful to God by changing their circumstances. You know, if I, if I leave home, if I go away and be a missionary, then I, I can be more useful to God. Whereas more often than not, God wants to, to keep our circumstances the same, but, but have us look at them with fresh eyes and, and to realise the opportunities that we already have open in front of us. All the, the people we know, the relationships that we have, the, the, the impact we can have right where we are. It's not wrong to change our circumstances. It's not wrong for, for people to, to go as missionaries but more often than not, God's, God's plan isn't to, to change our circumstances, but to use us in the circumstances he has already placed us. So that's those who commit themselves to God's king. Uh, secondly, coming to, to the first part of chapter 16, which is all we'll, we'll have time for tonight. We see those who aren't loyal to David. And the first person in this category of those who aren't loyal to David is Ziba. Uh, at the start of chapter 16. Ziba is a servant of Mephibosheth, who is a son of David's friend Jonathan and a grandson of Saul. Jonathan was killed along with his father Saul at the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, but uh, astonishingly, when David became king, rather than, than wipe out anyone associated with the previous king, he showed kindness to Mephibosheth. And here comes Mephibosheth's servant Ziba to meet David. And Ziba has laid on a feast for him. Uh, it's a, a pit stop in the wilderness. David sees Ziba and he asks the obvious question. Where is Mephibosheth? And in this Ziba puts on the, the saddest face he can muster. Perhaps even a few tears and uh, and alas, Mephibosheth is back in Jerusalem. He has chosen to stay. He, he's hoping, uh, Ziba says, to get Saul's kingdom back. And David believes him. David has to take a snap decision. Uh, and he does, though perhaps significantly, he doesn't send up an arrow prayer to God first, as he does back up in verse 31. But is Ziba's story true? Well, for a start, it doesn't really add up. Why would Absalom be interested in restoring Saul's kingdom? If David's life was under threat from Absalom, why would Mephibosheth's life be safe from him? 
And in fact, we get Mephibosheth's side of the story, uh, which I think is the true side of the story in chapter 19, where he tells us that Ziba has deceived him. And I think we can take it that Mephibosheth is telling the truth there, where, where Ziba is lying here. Mephibosheth, who of course uh, has been crippled from his youth, and Ziba uh, tricks him and leaves him behind. So Ziba is a manipulator, uh, and he's taking advantage of David's trouble here to advance his own cause. He knows that if he turns up without Mephibosheth, David will ask him where his master is. Uh, He he doesn't even have to come and say, David, you'll never guess what Mephibosheth has done. He he knows that the question will come, uh, and he just waits for it. He knows David won't be able to check his story and will have to make a a quick decision. And so he puts on a spread for the weary David, waits his opportunity and then makes his move. He takes advantage of someone's trouble to promote his own cause. I'm not suggesting any of us are a zeba, but perhaps it does call us to search our hearts. Someone has suggested that a modern equivalent of this might be uh, when we tell a troubled friend that we're praying for them, which, which could be a good thing. But do we do that simply to encourage them, in which case great? Or is part of it because we want them to think well of us? It could be easier than we might think to use someone else's trouble for our own benefit. Or it's not unlike what you... you what we might suspect today, um, occasionally you will see, you'll see a, a video of Christians perhaps getting arrested uh, and they've made sure the camera is rolling and then they can go on talking about how they were persecuted uh, and get lots of video views in the, pro- in, the, in the process. But did they actually, were they actually just going about their, their normal their normal Christian life, their normal Christian witness, or or were they doing something that they knew would have gotten them arrested? I've seen at least one video, and and that that certainly has been the suspicion of some, that it was staged in order to build a brand. And really any way in which it it looks like we're being loyal to the king, we, we say we're being loyal to the king, and we're actually putting ourselves out for his kingdom, but we're actually using that commitment to him to build our own kingdom and advance our platform. So you have Ziba, the manipulator. He seems to be loyal to the true king, but he's actually just in it for what he can get out of it. And next up in the disloyal category, you have Shimei. And there's no pretending about him he, he openly curses David, just as many openly curse the Lord Jesus in our own day. Just as Richard Dawkins and Stephen Fry and so on say terrible things about God. And nothing seems to happen to them. And yet that's exactly the situation here. David could easily have stopped Shimei's cursing. He has enough firepower to do it. He has so many men who could just take Shimei out in an instant. It wouldn't even be a contest. Just as if God decided to, to immediately end the lives of some of those today who, who, who so openly curse him. 
And Abishai offers to do it for David. He says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go and take off his head. So Abishai has a simple but effective way to stop him cursing. He's going to take off his head. That will be the end of his cursing. But David says no. And Shimei continues to curse People think that because they say something blasphemous and they don't get hit by lightning that God must not exist or that he's not able to do anything or that he doesn't care. But David has his reasons for not striking down Shimei here. And God has his reasons for not always striking down those who curse him today. The biggest of which is patience and mercy. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But one day that patience will come to an end. And if you don't repent, you're being allowed to go on and curse and and live whichever way you want will make you more guilty. And by being spared to curse more, uh, people are actually, uh, to use a phrase employed by Jesus and Paul, filling up the measure of their sins. And that is a solemn, solemn thing. Richard Dawkins had, uh, has a recent book called Outgrowing God. What should be our, our first reaction to, to hearing about something like that? Well, before getting up in arms and trying to refute it and so on, all of which is good and right, surely our first reaction should be to tremble for someone who would curse God like that and keep on cursing God and keep on doing it, thinking that nothing is going to happen. But what about David here? Why doesn't he stop Shimei? Well, he says at the end of verse 11, the Lord told him to do it. And by that, David recognizes that it's part of the, the consequence of a sin in committing murder and adultery. Uh, David knows that God is a God of justice who is fulfilling his word. He knows that. And so he says, let him curse. It is God's punishment for my sin and, and he knows he deserves it. But he also knows more than that. Verse 12 of chapter 16, it poses a bit of a challenge to Bible translators, but but a strong argument should be made for translating it as follows. It may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity and repay me with good for his cursing today. It's not what you would expect, but, but in some ways that's what makes it more likely to be true. That the Lord would look on David and his sin and the consequences it has brought him and still be gracious to him. And how can David say that? How can David even consider the possibility that God might look in his iniquity and replace cursing with blessing? Well, because he knows God's character. He knows that the Lord has this strangely wonderful way of looking on guilt and yet returning blessing instead of curse. And isn't that what happened above all at the cross? The Lord looked on our iniquity and he laid it on his son in order that he might return us blessing instead of cursing. 
And because of all that, David resists the natural human inclination to retaliate. How many people would have heard this continual cursing and had men able and willing to do something about it and and told them, don't do it. But David did, and, and so did Jesus when he told Simon Peter to put away his sword, when he refused to call down 12 legions of angels uh, to rescue him from the cross. And, and in fact, David, here in verse 10, when he says, what, I, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? <coughs> it's hard not to think forward to not the sons of Zeruah, but the sons of thunder. James and John, when they asked Jesus if he wants them to call down fire from heaven and consume a village that didn't receive him, Jesus rebukes them. And so once again, as David walks away from Jerusalem to save his life, he reminds us of the Lord Jesus walking to Jerusalem to give his life. Going in some ways in opposite directions, David goes away from the place where trouble is. Jesus goes to the place where trouble is. Because David is not Jesus, only Jesus can go to the cross for us. But in their, their character we see these parallels. And so as Absalom prepares to enter Jerusalem, where we'll take up the story next week, God willing, many have already made their decision. So what about you? What about you? May God give us all grace to choose and keep choosing to follow God's true king, whatever the consequences might be. Because we know that one day his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Well, we have an insight into David's thoughts at this time in the Psalms, and particularly Psalm 3. Uh, Psalm 3, where we're told, if you look at it in a Bible, that that David uh, wrote this at a time when he was on the run from Absalom. And it helps explain why, as we saw last week in the first part of the chapter, that David at no point panics. He he has to make quick decisions. He he doesn't sit around. He knows he has to get out of the city. He he knows what he has to do and he does it, but he, he never panics. And why doesn't he panic? Because he knows the character of his God. Uh, and he trusts in him, verse 2. But you're my shield and glory, Lord. You lift my head up high. Uh, verse 5. Salvation and deliverance come from the Lord alone. And then the great confidence in verse 3, uh, which uh, foreshadows the resurrection itself. I lay down, slept, and woke again because the Lord keeps me. I will not fear 10,000 foes entrenched surrounding me it is a song of God's king ultimately a song of Jesus so Psalm 3 tune 101 tune 101 will stand as we sing